Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here with us today. Season two is afoot and we are starting another journey into human nature. This time we're looking at the role passages play in the lives of my guests, the initiations, the transformations, the accidental, the intentful. Hold tight and listen in because we are about to journey into another incredible and beautiful series of conversations. Let's get into it. Here we go. Here we go. Amy Armstrong, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's really good to be here. I'm really honored. Thank you. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. I'm excited. In a certain way, this particular interview was random by chance because we ran into each other recently. I was passing through a neighborhood. You were in a situation and we got to interact there for a minute. But what happened for me is I'm like, you know, I started to think about what I knew about you. And I started to think about the things I did know about you. And I began to realize that that act of chance was actually really a bit of fortune because I thought you would make a really excellent interview for this season around passages and the conversation around passages. You know, as a high school teacher for 24 years at a private Catholic high school here in the Bay Area, I was found myself being really curious about what you know, what you think, what your experiences in your professional life working with young people, particularly at this point in their life where they are transitioning into their own sense of their adulthood, you know, junior, senior years. And so I'm really glad you're here. And so big welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted and honored and uh, I've never been on a podcast before. So I'm excited and, and also excited for you and, and your this project that you've been running. Um, you are in touch with your creative impulse and you know, the feeling of being called to put something out in the world. I resonate with that also. And, and I resonate with the topic of passages. For me, I am in my 24th year of teaching. I've been teaching at this particular school my entire teaching career. And teaching has always been an extension of my activism. The first 19 years of my career, I taught a class in social justice and a class in peace and conflict studies. The peace and conflict studies course was my master's thesis. And over the last few years, I've shifted um, to teaching a major religions course and AP psychology. Um, I've also taught like moral philosophy um, fairly recently. The passage of a young person from through adolescence into adulthood is already arduous in some ways, perilous even. Um, in terms of the, the really pernicious effects of a misguided culture upon their identity formation and therefore their life choices. And at this time, I can only imagine the pressure and fear and anxiety that they're feeling in the face of not only a pandemic, which has upended education, but also climate change. I, I asked a couple of my classes recently if they 
follow the news and, you know, some raise their hands. But I think it's got to be operating in the background. And so the absence of social, cultural support for that passage is of great concern. I think it should be of great concern to us all. There's an African proverb, the young person who is uninitiated, who is not initiated, will burn down the village to feel the heat. And so what I can say about the changes I've observed in, in the kids that I teach, you know, some of it is, is by way of just data um, in terms of the, the spike in adolescent psychiatric issues, anxiety, depression, and, and suicide, and self-harming behaviors. But there's certainly evidence of, I think it's probably a kind of an existential confusion because on the one hand the, there's a deep part of themselves that's longing to find themselves they're in the phase of life in which they're forming an identity but what the culture is feeding them through say social media doesn't access the core part of themselves their their soul if you will and what the larger world is really needing also does not align with what the culture is feeding them about either, the, you know, on the superficial level or what's on TikTok or what have you, or even the sort of prescribed path. You're going to go to college and then you're going to go to graduate school and then you're going to get a job and then you're going to have a family and you're going to be a contributing member of the economy. Well, I mean, if the Gulf Stream collapses, we can see a, a rapid collapse of ecological systems and the tectonic upheaval ecologically and economically and politically, socially. So there's a way in which, and we're all sort of existing in that reality, right, where there could be change in the not too distant future that impacts us individually and collectively and existentially, you know, in, in potentially catastrophic ways. So just to be able to wrap our heads around that is, is, um, you know, requires the stuff of myth, which is why I'm really grateful to be now in the realm of, of religious studies um, where we can, we can, talk about what the world's wisdom traditions have to offer us at this perilous time. Wow, that's a rich portrait of challenge and adversity for young people. And I agree that the world feels exceptionally precarious right now. And I'm curious with that, how you as a teacher, I was like, okay, there's a lot of different strands we could pull on here, but the main one I'd like to start with is a teacher. How do you, how do you work with that condition as you see it? And you started to go towards wisdom and myth, but I'm curious what the, the weight of what young people feel as you see it, how it's showing itself, and then how do you find your way through that 
and offer some semblance, I think, of an antidote to the soulless part, an antidote to um, an economy that's not necessarily concerned with genuine identity formation, as you as you placed it. My approach, I think, begins in affirming that the wisdom actually is largely within them, that when they spend three hours down a YouTube rabbit hole or Netflix or TikTok or, or whatever it is, or swept away by some sort of toxic conversational drama, they can feel it. They feel kind of toxic. And so just reminding them, just pointing out that that, that wisdom, that knowledge, that, that compass is, is actually already within them working. It might, be, it might be difficult to discern or it might be like really far sort of, you know, in the, in the recesses of their consciousness, but they are of the age where they want and need to exercise autonomy and so reminding them that they have agency and that there is a, a wisdom within them that is capable already of discerning what is supportive of their well-being and happiness and what is not. And so the question is, what do we do with that, with the voice of that inner guide? How much access do we have to it? And do we listen? And do we act accordingly? There's a kind of skills development in that, right? You know, I teach mindfulness meditation, and so there are, there are skills. I also try to teach them how to work with understanding their brain, understanding biology. That's the beauty of the time that we're living in. So we, we don't have to keep repeating the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. We can turn to science and say, well, what are the strategies for actually giving my brain the downtime that it needs, given that I'm in the constraints of an educational system that maybe don't support my full flourishing as a teenager. If it were up to me, we would have a, an educational system that was more a reflection of what we know about adolescent circadian rhythms and also what really matters in terms of their, their learning and the world that they're entering into. The system I would design would look quite different from what we have. What I tell them is, you know, we, we are nevertheless living within that system and the constraints of that system are outside of our control. And so what can we control? You can't control how much, you know, work a particular instructor is going to assign. You're tired you're um, stressed. And so the tendency is to escape our discomfort um, and self-soothe. And then we get more behind and procrastinate more. And, and then it's later and they're are even more deprived of their sleep. So just giving them strategies for working with their stress, whether it's plunging their hands into a bucket of ice or going outside and laying on the grass for 10 minutes or some 
non-sleep deep rest. I, I really love uh, Andrew Huberman's podcast. I've been listening to that quite a lot, using it in my AP psychology class and elsewhere. So those are some practical strategies. Yeah. And what do the young people do when you place them or build out that sense in them that, yeah, you know, you have the internal, I would call signals or messaging system, the feedback loops, which can actually tell you what is good for you, what is effective. Yeah. So what do they do with that? What I really noticed when I brought it up the other day, because we just started school, so they gave me eye contact and they leaned forward. You know, I have 32 kids in their desks behind masks and they're just like looking at me leaning forward. Tell me more about this inner wisdom. How can I, how can, how can I get at it? And then to place them in space and time in some way that feels helpful. So to connect them. To, I set up my classroom in this kind of like amphitheater type arrangement. And it's also meant to look like a cave. You know, I have like my, my twinkly fairy lights at the top and lots of plants and, <laughs> and you know, carpets. And it's all color coordinated, of course. And, and, beauty. <laughs> and, um, and it's like the cave of Lascaux, you know, so we're, we're entering into this ancient archetype of a teacher student relationship. It's bigger than our individual personalities within this context, we're entering into deep time. And so it's the teacher, it's, it's myself and my students, and it's myself and my students in conversation, sacred conversation um, with each other, the students with themselves, the teacher and the student in conversation with ancient teachers and teachings. So stretching back through time and then in conversation with those who have yet to be born and um, what, what is, you know, in, I've heard the seventh generation principle described a few ways. Um, This is from um, the Iroquois and and other tribes um, have employed it or um, that either we make no decision without considering its impact upon seven generations in the future, or we see ourselves as the center in um, a chain, the, 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 the mid-generation in a chain of three stretching into the past and three moving into the future. And so we're in conversation with through, through time. And that's one of the things that I really like to, to stress um, is how to view our lives through deep time, through a higher vantage point. You're frank and transparent with them about this sacred vision in the cave and the conversations you're just sharing with us right now. I am, yeah. When I talk about my seating chart and and asking for their help in arranging the seats, because it's it, it actually takes a long time to arrange the seats like that, where I can see every student, because it's not, they're not in rows. And so I'm trying to teach them how to look at everyday objects as metaphor or miracle or both. That's beautiful. I love the, the 
the juxtaposition of the very profane seating chart with the sacred cave. <laughs> That's just a really nice, like, oh, we still have to do seating charts even when we're in the sacred cave. But that sacred cave image is a really, really beautiful. And I would imagine that part of being in a private school gives you the permission to presence conversation and teaching with such a richness. It's remarkable to 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 be able to teach what I teach because I get to learn what I want to learn as well. And it's much more sustainable for me, you know, shifting from from social justice and peace and conflict studies to this this other I'm still at the same it's still the same objective, I suppose, which is healing. Peace and healing and sustainability, but 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 it's much more sustainable for me. What were you gonna ask? No, it's great. I was actually about to go to the teaching as an extension of activism. So I like the idea of of getting to the place of the transformation of your teaching subject and why that was important to you. But I'd love to start with how teaching became an extension of your activism and the spirit of your activism and what guides you around feeling called to be an activist. Starhawk always said the heart of an activist is born in the forest. And not long after I had moved to the Bay Area, I visited Headwaters Forest, and this was when it was being clear-cut, and it was very impactful. And I had been passionate about various causes prior to that, but I feel a sense of responsibility, particularly that grows out of privilege, I have running water and electricity. I have roads. To me, this is a place of privilege. And I guess I feel fortunate enough to have landed in a vocation, which I, I guess is maybe a little bit contradictory to say that one landed in a vocation. But I, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really planning on becoming a teacher. That was one of my questions for you was, did you have a calling towards teaching? And so I would love to know if it wasn't a calling or a plan or a, how did it happen? It, it happened um, sort of by chance, actually. I was, at the time, I, I was in my, my last semester in college. I was at UC Berkeley and I was working at a bookstore in Berkeley. And I thought that I was going to pursue like medical anthropology or medical sociology. I was very interested in sort of broadening conceptions of health and how that some of that, that broader conception might be operationalized in medical settings. So see the work of John Kabat-Zinn and uh, the mindfulness-based stress reduction and all of the, you know, the proliferation of those clinics throughout healthcare. I was also very interested in death. I had been a hospice volunteer at an AIDS hospice for a semester in the city in, in San Francisco in the mission. How old were you when you were doing that? How old was I? Twenty-six. And I want to go stay with the teacher thing, but I just can't help but ask what what the teaching was in in at twenty-six, being you know somewhere in the nineties when with HIV still pretty going pretty strong. I was really not prepared for those encounters. The encounter with specific like individuals, like men in the in the hospice, 
um, nor was I prepared for the encounter with my own mortality and specifically suffering, like physical pain and suffering and the loss of my faculties. It was it was a very profound experience, and I was taking I was taking graduate courses in the School of Social Welfare at the time. I knew that I wanted to study sort of spirituality and healthcare, so I was was also doing religious epidemiology at UCSF in a breast cancer program there in the city. I knew that it was not my calling at that time. I actually have a renewed interest in hospice work, in in death and dying. You were talking about how much you weren't prepared for that encounter with suffering and death at that age. That experience, it was formative. I carry it with me. I have shared one of the guided meditations, guided visualizations that was part of my training as a hospice volunteer with students on occasion, and it's been really profound for them. And I have a lesson or two in the unit on Buddhism on uh, Maranasati or death meditation. That's certainly um, an important part of that tradition, meditation upon the body in various stages of death and decomposition and eternal ground. I like to do that on Halloween actually and get very theatrical (laughs) and dramatic about it. (laughs) And just to presence the youth, what do they do when, you know, Ms. Armstrong comes in and drops the death meditation on Halloween? The death meditation itself, I have not had an opportunity to do on Halloween. When I did it with my AP psych students after the exam, they said it was their favorite experience of the year. And I've had students have pretty full-blown mystical experiences. You know, they were going to run away from home and then they weren't going to. And wow. crying, like sort of just open-hearted crying about the nature of time. It's been, that's been uh, one of the many enduring gifts of, of that experience as a hospice volunteer. You know, it's reminding me when I was a junior in high school in Southern California and I was in a psychology class, we had a guided relaxation meditation experience and it was profound for me. It was profound for me to know that I could wakingly find myself in a state of contentment with positive visualization about my own life and my own sense of self. And I would have to say actually that that probably seeded something in me that's still growing. Um, but I do, I'd appreciate the little detour into the, the encounter with the hospice work, but I want to, you were starting to say about Book intending store. to be a teacher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you were doing this work and then somehow you I left medical at a bookstore. Yeah. Yes. On, on the weekends. And I would, because I just, I, it was sort of like, you know, spiritual and earthy bookstore and they had author talks and I started volunteering to set up chairs for the authors. And then they were like, well, I think we just need to hire this young woman. So, you know, I had my job at the bookstore while I was finishing in school. And there was a man who'd worked there at my school at the time he'd been at the school for like 16 years who also worked on Saturdays at the bookstore. And he's like, somebody's retiring uh, in the theology department. I think he'd be great. And so 24 years later, here I am at the same school. And uh, he retired not too long ago. I gave his retirement spiel. So he saw something in you and said, I think you should go here and do this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He 
he's an amazing man. He mentored a lot of kids and me. That's beautiful. I love that. So on the activist side, becoming a, a, a teacher, you saw as an extension of your activism, but you were alluded to a couple times that the teaching the activism stopped working for you in some way. And I gather there's a lot of meat in there of, of mm-hmm. experience that I'm really curious about of, you know, of course, the draw to activism, the power of activism, the investment of activism, but also realizing at a certain point, maybe something else or another way. Would you be willing to walk us down that road? Yes. One of my uh, the theologians I, I encountered when I was working at the bookstore is a man named Matthew Fox. And he mentioned uh, his conviction that, shared his conviction that each of us has within us a mystic and a prophet. And the way I see my vocation at this time is some kind of an amalgamation I think that we are living at such a time that it's important that we remain connected to what's happening in the world and that we engage. And and for the students, I want to encourage them to think very carefully about their career path. And I hope that they select a career which provides them a, a, a way of spending more and more time with the deepest part of themselves. And I have a, a greater trust that the deepest part of the self is also in relation to the ecosystem, the, the, the human and non-human world and what the needs of that world um, are. And that that we can trust that the soul will not lead us astray, you know, in terms of um, what's needed at this time. Because I think it wouldn't be misaligned with what's needed at this time for a student to say, what, what, I, what I think I'd like to do is, is learn how to farm, learn how to grow food, and to live simply. We're going to need students who are thinking very carefully about the very thorny ethical issues of AI. I have several students who are interested in, in AI and um, you know, if we, if we find ourselves through the uncanny valley uh, with regard to robots that appear to be human and appear to be conscious and we're going to need people of of with really strong ethical compasses to to weigh in mm-hmm. and so i think that that's you know that, that that my activism is my activism used to be you know about trying to give them experiences of um, awareness, uh, awareness of you know various realities that were going on in the world that would engender empathy and catalyze action. And now I think I'm just trying to I'm I'm going about it sort of from the root, 
from from the individual root as opposed to sort of you know up on the roof shouting you know, look over here the cycle of poverty and the history of redlining and retaliatory justice and trying to get at you know the manifestations of some of the deeper kind of flaws, fatal flaws in our in our system, zero sum rivalrous games and, and all of that um, on a finite planet and you know the fact that our technology has outpaced our wisdom. So it'd sort of be pointing at all of the manifestations of that. And and now I'm just sort of trying to point out wisdom. And so whatever field they pursue if they didn't grasp the wisdom teaching, um, you know, on that <laughs> during that lecture on that day, they at least know we've got some seed planted that there's some there's some source of of guidance out there, which I think you know maybe that can help me at this point in my life when I'm when I'm you know in need of it when they are in need of it. Absolutely. When we're all in need of it at different points. Um, I'm curious about how you came to see that change, because if, if I hear you correctly, Amy, what I hear is you started to see the value of investing in the psychological, moral, and ethical development in a very tangible, actionable way within. And, and, I, and I hear in your language a kind of a hybridization I don't hear from many people of just like bio-spirituality, the, the deep wisdom of the evolutionary uh, essence that is actually what we also know as soul at some level, and there's kind of old divisions aren't really there. So I really appreciate the intricacy of keeping that out of a polarity and keeping the, the biology and the wisdom of biology as part of the resource. I mean, it's it's what we are, what we wear, at least one of those two or some combination. And so, you know, uh, it's nice to know we can rely on biology <laughs> in a certain way. And so I hear you, I hear you holding that and I hear you moving towards that kind of integrative wisdom. Um, but I'm curious how you made that switch. And if you hit a wall, um, if you had a, a, you know, some kind of insight and how that moved for you? Well, the answer is mundane. It is not, I guess, by chance as well. I mean, my Peace and Conflict Studies course didn't align with the, the national curriculum. And so it was not offered. And then the social justice class became more of a capstone project with a TED talk and um, there are other people running that. And the teacher who brought me in and, and mentored me and taught major religions for 35 years retired and they launched AP Psych. So it was really more of an institutional shift uh, that really, really benefited me, you know, that, that, that really worked for me. Yeah, how so? What did you find when suddenly you were in the new landscape, even if it was not of your own volition? I no longer felt compelled to stay on top of the next bad news story. So 
you know, in September when the poverty uh, data is released, it's, it's often actually released around September 11th because they know that people aren't really focused on poverty data on September 11th. You know, I, I can look at it, but I'm not responsible for teaching it and for updating my slide decks to reflect the, you know, I mean, I've taught all the wars in the Middle East. Uh, my heart breaks for what's happening in Afghanistan now. I've, I've had women Skype who've been part of the Afghan women's writing project. They would um, go in secret by taxi to an undisclosed location and be given a thumb drive so they could work on their poetry, you know, and, and so to know what's, what's happening now in Afghanistan, to the, it, it, it's heartbreaking. I've taught you know, Syria and Afghanistan, Iraq, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, refugees. I, so I, I don't have to teach all of that anymore. And it's hugely relieving for my psyche. Nineteen years was a was a long run. Was it too long in some way? Is it nineteen years too long to be in that world? Uh, looking back, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think it was a long time. Um, it, and it's you know, as someone who started teaching climate change, obviously just looking at the IPCC reports, and you know, would host at the end of the unit, we'd have uh, sort of sacred circles and. and just, tried to use the work of Joanna Macy as much as I could as well. It's um, in some perverse way vindicating for some of the work that I've done and some of the conversations I've had with students who've been influenced by, I don't know, their parents or the broader culture, you know, and believing that climate change is a hoax or, you know, I'm sure that there were weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq or, or, or what have you, you know, things that I used to have to really document meticulously with my sources are now just common knowledge. So it's just very relieving to be able to rest in, in, in things that are more sort of ancient and um, less politicized. I'm really, really relieved to no longer be teaching uh, topics that are, that are so horribly politicized. The truth has become very politicized. Unfortunately, that's very true. Um, so is that the mystic? Like, are you are you more in a mystic phase um, in terms of that Matthew Fox archetypal mystic prophet? Very much so. Very much so. You know, Michael Mead is another um, kind of intellectual and spiritual uh, mentor for me. And uh, I love his discussion of the word weird. And... I would say that I, I sort of embrace my weirdness and encourage students to embrace their weirdness um, because it's, the, it's, you know, it's the sort of one foot in this world, another foot in the other world, and that idiosyncratic essence of, of oneself um, is the, the sort of archetypal meaning of it or the etymological, original etymological meaning, um, as I understand uh, his, his telling of it. And so, yeah, I'm kind of weird in class sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, talking about, I don't know, whether it's referring to paper as, uh, 
as uh, creatively processed trees that enable us to like inscribe these symbols, which we can then interpret. And then we've got these three <laughs> metal rings, which line up perfectly with the three whole, you know, whatever it is, they're talking about hole punchers and binders and highlighters. But these mm-hmm. things are miracles, right? We're not scratching out our lessons in the dirt. So let's call them what they are. It's, it's a miracle that we have these writing utensils, these implements, we have paper. Mm. So just, you know, Einstein, you can view the world and there's nothing, there are no miracles or everything is a miracle. So I'm in that second camp and, and, and that's, I really try to impart that as well because cynicism is so hip and it's, it's not very uh, joyful. <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear all that super, uh, it's like delicious to hear you kind of talk about this creative, uh, less burdened, you know, and I think there's limits to the load, the burden load, um, particularly with stressful, global, individually impossible to solve, um, situations and no I like that you brought in Mead's work uh, around weird and and I think in a lot of ways you know if I understand his work enough that you know his argument would be somewhat similar that the solution in part lies with connecting with the weird original soulful unique parts of our humanity in the face of uh, misguided culture as you called it so I love all that. I think that's really beautiful. And I, I kind of have a sympathetic joy of happiness mm-hmm. for you to limit your burden uh, mm-hmm. of, of the weight. And also a damn deep appreciation that you fought those intellectual detail fights for 19 years. I, I Archetypes I work with around stress that I think are at play are the warrior and the mystic. And I, and I realize Mm. that the warrior and the mystic are two ways we deal with stress. And, you know, we know that like Navy SEALs and, and military and, and athletes and, and high performing people know how to access their warrior and understand the actual condition that they're in and face it with a kind of preciseness and and in in the world as it is and then this mystical part where we go pressureless and it's alchemical and we transform at another dimension from the weird side and i think they're both relevant and i think that um as i hear your story that you're move you've moved and it's a beautiful thing all these chances <laughs> from the chance of being a teacher the chance of a new class the chance of this conversation i'm i'm appreciating all that mm-hmm. yeah, it's that's beautifully said i love teaching the warrior and 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 emphasize that and start with islam and finish out the abrahamic traditions and then move to indigenous traditions and then hinduism and all three of those traditions in all three of those traditions, the warrior is, is important. You know, whether it's the greater jihad, which is the battle fought within against one's vices, um, or or Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita as that archetypal warrior. Um, so I, I really, I think um, that seems correct to me, the warrior and the mystic. And they inform one another. You know, I, I think just, I also like to, point out to the students that to consider that they are not a self so 
you know, in becoming the best version of themselves, that the, the individual self is a compilation of many voices and many facets, and that we can, you know, like family systems theory or constellation um, therapeutic modalities, where you're in actual sort of gestalt conversation with these various facets of the self, and there's much to be learned, and it's a it's a useful tool. I love that you're working with applying that to stress. Absolutely, and. And I was right there yesterday in a conversation with my wife in a therapy session, and it was, you know, exactly that. Like, okay, <laughs> there's more than one voice going on here, more mm-hmm. than one feeling and perspective, and they each kind of need to be heard or understood at some level. But I, I'm I'm loving the the wisdom part of it, and I'm loving the the pattern of multiple um, ways that young people can begin to understand their condition mm. and the challenges that they f- that face them. I'm loving, I guess, in a way, the, the spiritual warrior. You know, there is the street action side of things. Um, but there's another one that I really hear you presencing in so many ways. For me, when I think about it at a very deep level, you know, I listened to Huberman too, and I got turned on to Lisa Feldman Barrett. No, Have you I heard don't know her? her. No. Oh yeah, you should check her out. Ooh, she got a really you. beautiful. She got a really beautiful book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain," mm. and it's really fascinating neuroscience. And basically, you know, the takeaway I goes, okay, we have a, we all have a holodeck. We're all mm. hallucinating all the time what we think is going on until we get enough pain or enough interest, curiosity to say, well, what is really going on? And that the brains, our brains are evolved for prediction. So we're modeling, predicting all the time, unconsciously sorting it out, all our emotional, mental, and physiological experiences are related to that predictive, adaptive need brains have to handle their environment. And so um, I know <laughs> I lost my train of thought why I jumped into the Huberman. Uh, we were talking just a second ago. The selves and being in conversation with the selves and the holodeck. And... Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and so the wisdom part is a lot of the solution is really at this ground level of how do we create humans and their mental models and their mental maps? And mm-hmm. can we can that's how I've started to see mm-hmm. that the deep self is not just these layers of evolution, but it's the composite story making self mm-hmm. of engendering that. And, you know, when it when it's not done well, we can see it everywhere. And if it's not understood well, we can see it everywhere. But the more we can interact with each of us in our own way with ourselves in terms of understanding the different parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. or the different energetics are going on or different drives or different needs or different ambitions. Um, That's really helpful. It's Mm -hmm. really, really helpful to know that, that, you know, the old early, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s spiritual proverb, you create your own reality has a lot of neuroscientific foundation for that and to be able to teach young people to access that to be able to work with ourselves to be able to access that is really i can't imagine and building cultures that can actually serve that and relate with that from Mm. the impacts of poverty and the equity issues i mean it just it's it's up and down the board it's Mm. the only way 
not about to almost get too limited, not the only way, but an important way forward for having a more regenerative, you know, experience for more human lives on this planet as we move forward. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, the embrace of reality is really important, right? At, at multiple levels. And, um, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed introducing students to Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True. And uh, he's, he doesn't use true, of course, in the theological sense, but in the sense that the, the claims made by uh, the Buddha and by advanced practitioners um, you know, within that tradition cohere with what we know about this kind of amalgamatory, if that's a word, nature of reality. And our stories do tend to loosen their grip, I think, or they don't, they don't stick for, they don't stick as painfully or for as long. Um, and so there's, I think, a greater possibility for equanimity uh, with our experience and with what is. And I think, I think we need to bring equanimity even to the greater crises that we face isn't to say that we check out, but that there's, there are degrees of acceptance and preparation. You know, we prepare for, for the ride ahead. It's, it's going to be a ride, you know, and to expect um, our model of reality to remain intact, uh, I think, is to set ourselves up for, you know, for suffering, for the suffering being, you know, resistance to to what is and, and what can't be avoided so i hope that you know with um more and more interest in these models of reality and the brain and the the intersection of of neuroscience and some of these ancient descriptions of you know these ancient maps or that uh, you know that, that that can more and more inform um, how we go about educating and and reforming institutions, understanding you know the reptilian brain and our tendency toward dualism and tribalism and. Uh, yeah, the, the work of Jonathan Haidt, I think, has been really helpful around that too. Just that we're not we're not going to change minds by making arguments so much. It's you know that that can be part of it. Understanding those sort of moral flavors that are informing a person's position, you know, whether it's respect for authority and obedience, a favoring of an attitude of sanctity or respect for freedom and care. You know, these are these sort of can be these competing like moral intuitions or moral impulses that that really, uh, I mean, according to Haidt's work, uh, much of that is rooted in our genetics and, and the presence of different neurotransmitters, whether we have serotonin or glutamate. There is no amount of a rational argument that tends to be able to move that needle. So just understanding our, the intersection of biology and politics, biology and, and um, 
and sociology, you know, how, how groups operate internally and, and with it, you know, um, intergroup, I think, I don't know, maybe we stand a chance of, of, of being able to, um, craft a more, uh, supportive and sustainable path forward. I hope so. Well, I think you just made a excellent argument for, um, the hope I find in, in progressive science right now and in terms of how biology and sociology is and genetics are understood. And I think your students and I think our communities and the communities that you serve are lucky to have a teacher like you as sincere and as committed to not just giving kids the basic education, but giving them the kind of deep imagination and foundation of self in order to meet, endure, confront, handle what's ahead of us, because it's going to be a lot. We all know in what ways exactly we don't. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much, Mm -hmm. Amy Armstrong, for what you do, and thank you for being on the show today. I very much appreciated having you here. That was really beautifully said, and thank you so much, Jeff, for inviting me. I'm very honored. Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us. 